copy of God's Word this morning to John chapter 18. I want to continue to work uh, uh, through the Gospel of John. I would take time today to acknowledge Brother David and his dad, David Sr., back with us after a little while out. And David had some surgery and uh, seems to be recovering well. And then also... Amen. Amen. And then Brother Mike here, uh, very soon after his knee replacement surgery. So we've got two, two surgical patients back with us today. So uh, good to have them. And uh, I usually don't acknowledge folks, so I'm afraid I'll forget somebody. But uh, it's been a while since David's with us, and, and I'm glad to see Mike recovering very quickly. But John's gospel is likely or was uh, the latest of the gospels written. Uh, it's an interesting gospel. In fact, it's very different from the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John emphasizes, it seems to me, from the very beginning, a really strong emphasis on the deity of Christ. That's um, why a lot of times for someone's a new believer, uh, one of the books I direct them to to read first in the Bible is the gospel of John because uh, for one, two reasons, uh, one reason is because I think by nature uh, we are prone to miss the deity of Christ. Uh, we, we're inclined to humanize him so much that we minimize his deity. And if you, if you remove his deity from him, then you don't get a full Christ. Uh, I think it was the same early in the church's history as well. And so John seems to be speaking to that issue or maybe he... Uh, was aware of the other gospels and he's laying down this as a balance to those as well. Uh, he doesn't give us as much detail as the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, in fact, if you want to try to build a chronology of events, you need to take all of those into account. But John's point is not to lay out a, a historical unfolding of all the events that took place in Holy Week. His emphasis seems to be upon uh, the identity of Christ. And that's important uh, you hear me quote this passage a lot, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we have a, it's defined for us what our problem is. In fact, in fact Paul says there, his gospel, uh, if it is veiled, in other words, if it is somehow undiscernible to people, the reason for that is that they are perishing. And so the perishing can't see the gospel clearly. Something has to happen for them to do that. We all know people who are not, with, uh, not believers and who are outside of Christ and we pray for them and we maybe even share the gospel with them and we lay it out as clearly as we can and they walk away and there's no response, it seems, to the gospel. Well, the reason for that is they can't see it clearly. And Paul goes on to write this. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul inserts here, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness. I believe he's referring back to creation, uh, out of nothingness. But God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts 
to give a very specific thing here. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I think that's what John is writing to in his gospel. If you're a believer and the veil has been removed and the the blindness of the God of this world and your state as perishing has been taken away, when you read the gospel of John, you're getting a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In fact, uh, you've all probably heard of John's seven I am statements. Uh, They are all made to be in references to the to the Mosaic revelation, to God's revelation to Moses when he was to go back to Egypt. And he says, what do I do when I go to Israel? Who shall I tell them sent me? And God tells him, tell them I am sent you. And so when John is saying that and he's laying out in his gospels these seven I am statements, I think he's referring back to that to communicate to us something about the identity of Christ. And I see that on display in chapter 18 as Jesus is about to, he crosses over the ravine of the Kidron and goes up into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he's betrayed. So let me read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, all the words of John 17, had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Notice the same response. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. John tells us to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost none. And Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink from it? So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, just as I've read from 2 Corinthians, we are in need today of the veil being further removed, even for we who believe, but Most importantly, Father, for those who have not yet come to believe that this would be the day that the veil that has blinded their minds to seeing Christ for who he is would be taken away today, that you would command in that heart that there should be light, that they may see in Christ the glory of the Father and the glory of God. We are needful of you for this to be accomplished today. Lord, help me in the speaking, help those who are here in the listening And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be grounded in the truth of your word. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. <laughs> As I was looking through this passage, uh, several different directions, uh, but one of the things in light of what John is trying to accomplish that came to me is I want to I want to look at this particular text and all the text, but this particular one uh, specifically and see what John is saying to us about Christ. Now, we already know from the very beginning of his gospel, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, he's already laid down from the very beginning what he's saying about Jesus. He is God. In fact, he, he came in the flesh, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. He tabernacled among us in the flesh. So he's laying down this reality of the man, the God-man, as it were, God in human flesh. And so he's making his point. So I want to look at this text this morning and just share a few things that I've observed that John could be communicating in regards to who this Jesus is coming into the garden. The first is the most obvious. It's Jesus, <laughs> This is who's coming to the garden. This is who's coming uh, and making his way now to the cross. We're not talking about the apostles. We're not talking about the religious leaders. This is Jesus that, that is being highlighted here. Let me just say this so it'll be an umbrella over what's happening here. But John seems to me to be communicating very clearly who, is it, who it is who's in charge of the events that are unfolding. It is not who you think. It is not who the world would say it is. This is Jesus. And it is no surprising place for him to be. In chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, My heart is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour, for this is the hour for which I came into the world. This is no strange place to Jesus. This is what he came into the world to do. This is where he came into the world to be. This is, no, this is no happenstance. This is not some situation brought about by the wickedness of men, instrumental though they may have been. This is not a strange place for Christ. This is Jesus. In John 12, 32, even speaking of the nature of the death that's right before him, he says, if I, the Son of Man, am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And John tells us he said this referring to the kind of death he should die. Jesus is in the garden having prayed, having crossed over the brook Kidron, come up into the Gethsemane, and is right before the cross now, and he knows it. It's not a surprise to him. In fact, the prayer in Gethsemane indicates to me his recognition of what that involves. But Jesus says, if the Son of Man be lifted up, referring to the type of death. So it's no surprise here. Jesus has not been captured somehow or, or tricked or outsmarted into some inescapable place. Jesus has come here deliberately and has a deliberate path to follow. It is not Something surprising. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus begins that chapter in his prayer saying this, The hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's being answered here. It's not later on, this is the glory of the Father being on display now in the unfolding events in the Son's life. And in His obedience and submission to the Father here, it is the manifestation of His own glory as well. This, these things must be. 
And so I just wanted to emphasize that this morning. This is, this is a very distinct person in the universe in the garden here. This is Jesus that he's speaking of. And that's important because he has a very specific things to say about this particular Jesus. In verse 1 you see there as well that this is a Jesus who went forth. As I've said already, Gethsemane is not a place of withdrawal but a place of advance. You ever thought about that? We think of that as a retreat in some ways. And in some ways he retreated from the crowds to pray there. But in other ways it's not a retreat from the unfolding events. It's a step towards those. He is going to Gethsemane. Later in this passage it says when the crowds came out, he didn't wait for them to arrive at him. He saw them at a distance and he rose himself and went to them. He went forth to them. Here he goes forth to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is not a step away from the cross. It is a step toward the cross. How many of us, by the way, as Christians who are commanded themselves to die daily, to take up our cross and follow Christ. How many of us go to the Gethsemane? How many of us go forth to Gethsemane and, and view it as a step towards that rather than a retreat from it? Gethsemane is not a place where you neglect to follow the will of the Father. It is a place where you fight for the struggle and the resolve to do that very thing. That's the battle that's going on in the life of the Son in the garden. He went forth to the garden. It is a step towards. It's interesting, but Gethsemane literally means an olive press. It is an olive grove, believed to have been an olive grove there. And in the midst of that grove, there was an olive press. They would harvest the grapes. And, and the way you get the valued thing out of the harvest, out of the olives, was to put them in the press and to slowly bring down pressure upon the olives, which the pressure pushed out of the olive that which was most valued in the olive, which was the oil. It's not... It's not coincidental that Jesus is in the olive press himself. Here is the garden where the pressure will come to its fullest outside of the cross, where the battle will be done, where Jesus will, as it were, have squeezed from him the blood and the sweat in the, in the overcoming there and the submission to the Father. Jesus went forth to that, toward the cross, not backing away from the cross. It was necessary to be prior to the cross. Jesus experiences that pressure here. In verse 1 as well, this is the Jesus who is accompanied, at least temporarily. It says in verse 12, chapter 17, 12, that Jesus would preserve them. In fact, Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping in them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Again, in verse 7, uh, 17, chapter 17, verse 32. Excuse me. 1632. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So Christ has come to Gethsemane now accompanied by his disciples to whom he is obliged, as it were, to guard while he is in this life. In his prayer, he says, I have kept them in your name and not a single one has perished. And they're going to the garden with me, not so much to comfort me as for me to guard them. In fact, they fell asleep. Sorry comforters were they if that was their role there. 
They are there to be preserved all the way into the end by Christ, which is what he's praying here. And in his prayer, he says, I have kept them. Now, Father, you keep them in your name. I am coming to you now. And so Jesus is accompanied by his disciples into the garden. And there they fall asleep. But he says in chapter 16, verse 32, that whenever the pressure comes, they will be scattered in the fulfillment of Scripture. And they will leave me alone, but I am not alone even then, for my Father is with me. So when the disciples are going away, the Father is still with the Son. Jesus comes to the garden accompanied. And just before the cross, he has the company and the fellowship of the Father, which I think that was the great battle of Gethsemane for the first time in the existence of the Son. He is not going to experience fellowship with the Father. Sin is going to obscure that to some degree, and I think that was the great sacrifice involved for the Son and His eternal fellowship with the Father. That is going to be interrupted, as it were, as I become the sin offering, and that what pressured the great sweat and blood from His body. But He was not alone. He was not alone. In verse 2 of chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 2, this is also the unconcealed Jesus. I say that because Gethsemane is a place of where they gathered, was a place familiar to all of them. In fact, John goes out of his way to say to us that Jesus, Judas also in verse 2, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so this is not a place to go away and to hide a little while. He's already, Judas has already gone out. He's already out doing his dirty work and betraying Christ. And so if, if it was a natural thing, perhaps Christ would take his disciples somewhere to protect them or at least to delay somehow or another that betrayal and his arrest. But Jesus goes to a place that Judas is very familiar with. In fact, I would add later on when they come up and he says, whom do you seek? And they say, uh, Jesus the Nazarene. It seems to me that at least the officers there would have recognized Jesus. He says later on, I was in the temple teaching every day. You know what I look like. Why are you asking who do you seek? We all know who you're seeking. You've come to get me. Why do you have to have me identify myself? The reality is, Jesus was not concealing himself at all. In fact, he has to be the willing sacrifice. I was thinking about this. Do you know all the millions of goats and bulls sacrificed by, the, by Israel all down through the ages? Not a single one of those went voluntarily. They went ignorantly. Lots of them probably were just led right along. And when they got right to the point of sacrifice, the priests slit their throats and they poured out their bloods and they took them upon the altar and they overpowered him. It is critical that this lamb goes willingly. He is not to be forced. And I think that's what John is driving home here. Someone else is in charge here. And it is not you, Judas. In fact, I think that's why he makes a point later on to say, and Judas was standing with them. He had chosen his side. He thought they had the advantage and the authority and the power and the benefits, the benefits of the unfolding events. And Jesus is essentially saying, no, you don't. I go willingly. I'm not concealing myself. I'm not hiding away. In fact, I am here to make sure that you take me to that cross. Acts 12 or 4.27. What God had foreordained. 
So we see the unconcealed Jesus. Again, the Garden of Gethsemane was not, was not a place for fugitives. It was a place essentially of waiting. Jesus went there to await the unfolding of the plan of God, the plan, in fact, of redemption. Let me just say, please remember that. Please, Christian, remember that. He won a victory. And he didn't go into it with, the, with it questionable. <laughs> he, he was ordained and he came into the world to purchase for us this redemption. And it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It was never in question. And all the enemies of Christ, the adversary himself, were throwing everything they could to try to undermine whatever the redemptive purposes of God were. And everything they did played right in to the very redemption they were trying to cancel out. They were contributors to their own destruction in Christ. I love this passage because I always think of the very first prophecy. Oh, you've, you've won this small victory here in the garden, serpent. But there's a great victory coming. In fact, you will be bruising the heel of the seed of this woman. But in the bruising of his heel, you bring about the crushing of your own head. So have your way, evil one, because you're contributing to your own demise through this one. That's who's in the garden. This is who's in the garden. So we see the unconcealed Jesus in verse 2 and 3. We see the betrayed Jesus, the Jesus betrayed John 13, verse 18 and 26, this was already foretold. Jesus already knew. In fact, it was generally said, but then it was specifically said in one of the other Gospels during the, the Last Supper there and the, or uh, sometime before that perhaps, but Jesus identifies at least for Peter and John who it is exactly that would betray him by dipping a morsel of bread and handing it to him. And they identify him. So, so it is ordained that the Son of Man be betrayed. Jesus says, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Here comes Judas, the betrayer. I touched on this Wednesday night, but that really struck me this past week because I was thinking of all the disciples, I might have, worldly speaking, trusted Judas more than all. I mean, he's the guy with the money. If someone gives us a gift or some money to support our ministry, we give it to Judas and he takes care of the money. That has to be a trusted individual here. You don't give your money to the one that's flighty or untrustworthy. You give that to the one that's most responsible and the most trustworthy. And that's the very one that is betraying Christ for what? Money. To fulfill the scriptures, by the way. It is stunning when we read it, but again, to Jesus, this is no surprise. In fact, when he went out from the upper room, he says, go and do what you do. Go and do thou that which you are going to do quickly. And the disciples, even at that point, said in John here, it says that they thought that perhaps he was going out to buy some food for the poor and to distribute that, to use the money in some way. And Jesus still knows at that moment, I know what you're doing, Judas, so go ahead and go do your work because I've got some things to do here with my apostles, my disciples, and then we're crossing the Kidron and we're walking towards the cross. And you have a role to play in that, Judas, so go ahead, Judas, and fulfill that which has been ordained for you. So this is no surprise to Jesus. 
Maybe it was to the other disciples. I don't know if word had got around from, from John and Peter that it was in fact Judas. I don't know. We're not told that that was the case. So at least for some of the disciples, this might have been stunning. Here comes Judas. And to add insult to injury, not only does he betray his Lord, but he does so with a kiss. That's striking to me because it, a kiss should have indicated the exact opposite. A kiss should have indicated devotion and love and and commitment and loyalty. Everything a kiss would have communicated, loving care and all those, everything a kiss would have communicated was being contradicted by the very actions of this betrayer. You ever hear people make excuses for Judas? Well, I think maybe he thought he could press the kingdom into existence. All sorts of things like that. And I always hear those things and I, I think to myself, why, why are you trying to minimize the sin of the betrayal of Jesus Christ? John says the reason he did it is because he liked money. Simple as that. He had no agenda to press the issue with Christ. Somewhere along the line, he figured out that he could profit off of this Christ. And it looked like things were turning against him. And apparently he thought that at least I can get 32 pieces of silver out of it. And he sold Christ down the river, as it were, for a simple motivation of greed. And so Judas bears full responsibility for his betrayal. And we see that he never repented from that, even if he did feel remorse He returned the silver and he went out and he hung himself. He is no man to be exalted or to diminish the nature and the depth of his sin. He betrayed Christ. So we see Jesus betrayed. In verse 4 is interesting to me as well, but here we see the knowing Jesus. In verse 4 he says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. So this is, this, again, this is not surprising. In fact, it is unfolding precisely as he knows it to be unfolding. He knows who the betrayer is. He knows that he will betray him with the kiss. He knows that it will be 32 pieces of silver that he was sold for. He knows everything that is unfolding here. He knew that the one who eats bread with me will lift up his heel against me. He is knowing all these things. And it says, knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth. Again, he's not retreating from, from the upper room in the John 17 high priestly prayer. He's heading towards the cross. He goes across the, the valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. And now whenever they come out against him and knowing everything that is got about to unfold, again he takes the initiative and moves in their direction. He doesn't even pause and stay where he is and let them get to him. That would have been, to me, bravery. <laughs> It would have been to me great courage to stand my ground and let them approach. More likely, I would have backed up and got hemmed in and finally got caught. But Jesus, seeing them, knowing everything more so than even they do that is coming upon him, takes the step towards them, knowing Jesus. It's one thing to submit to the Father and And I thought about this, one thing to submit to the Father, but not being clear about all that's going to be involved in this. But He knows everything intricately that is going to be involved and experienced. And even with the weight of that, yet He yields to the Father. That's who's in the garden. That's who John's talking about. And that's significant. 
He's not going into something blind and then he gets so deep into it, then the pain is so great, but now he's committed and he can't get out. It's not like that at all. He must drink the cup from the Father. That's what he says himself. Shall I say, deliver me from this hour? Why why should I say that? This is for the reason I have come. Later, he tells Peter when he reacts, he says, put your sheath away. Shall I not drink of this cup? That is the cup. He knows all things that are coming upon him, yet he goes towards it. Towards it. So he's the knowing Jesus In verse 4 as well, he is also the confronting Jesus. As I said, he approached them. But it strikes me, it's interesting, because he's knowing all things, and he knows who they've come for, but yet when he approaches them, he says to them, whom do you seek? That's really an interesting question. Because they know, Judas certainly knows, and Jesus knows who it is that they've come to seek. And I don't think he's saying this just to establish some precedent so the others can go free. I think there's more happening here. It's as if it's almost not an inquiry in regards to a request to gain some knowledge from them, but an inquiry that would cause them to ask themselves, who is this that we've come out to arrest? Who is this really? Who is it that you have come for? That's what Jesus is saying to them. So he's confronting them. I wrote in my notes this. It's almost as if he was saying, do you know who it is that you have come for? Do you really know? Well, the obvious answer is no because of the God of this world who had blinded their minds and they can't look at Christ and see the glory of God. They have no clue who they're going for. They may have had the information, but they didn't believe it. And Jesus is calling into question or even contrasting or shining light on the reality that you have demonstrated your wickedness in that you have come out for one whom you deny who he is. You're looking for a Nazarene. I'm more than a Nazarene. That's essentially what he's saying. I thought about this. This is who you didn't come to seek. By their answer, you didn't come looking for the son of David. You didn't come looking for the son of God. You didn't come looking for the son of man. You came for the Nazarene. Uh, Some some authors, and I agree with them, believe that, that their answer itself was a reflection of what they had been taught by the religious leaders, and it was itself an assault against the very being and identity of Christ. It was to minimize him to the kid born in Nazareth. At most, to the prophet of Nazareth. We've come out to get the man, Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus has confronted them with. I know that's who you've come out to get. But that's more, that is not all of who I am. And he's about to demonstrate that to them. I wrote in this as well. True, it is true he is a Nazarene. But in their use, probably meant as a rejection of Jesus' true identity, as was the opinion of those who had sent them. I think that's what's involved in Jesus the Nazarene. Remember now, there are officers from the Pharisees and, and the, sad, or the religious leaders. So there are officers there. And the rest of these is a captain and a cohort of Roman soldiers. So you've got Gentiles. Uh, with authority of the Roman Empire there, and then you've got officers representing the interest and the desires of those uh, to whom they are subject, being the religious leaders. That's who's here, and Judas is right alongside them. And the best they can come up with is, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. 
But strikingly, Jesus answers them in verse 5, and Jesus, the Nazarene, and he says to them, I am he. If your Bible shows he in italics there, that's because it's not in the, the original text, the Greek text. And so the implication here is that when they ask, uh, whom, when he asked, whom did you come to seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene, that Jesus said, I am. Now, I thought about this because whatever that, whatever's involved there produced a backing up and a falling down. And I thought, well, if they heard that and they did like the, the religious leaders are going to do later and they outraged, ripped their robes, if they heard that and they thought to themselves, such blasphemy, and they just kneeled down waiting on lightning to strike Jesus, well, my question is, why does the cohort do that? The, the Romans don't give a rip. They don't care if you blaspheme God. The only one that might have done that would have been the, religious, uh, the officers of the religious leaders or perhaps even Judas in that case. Something was evident in the way that he spoke, maybe not even the way that he spoke, but in the providence of God Almighty who for a moment lifted the veil and they heard with authority of Christ God in flesh. You remember other places in the scripture when they sent those out to investigate Jesus and they were trying to find something on him and they came back and reported to the religious leaders and they said, never has a man spoke this way. He speaks with an authority. God had given them light, I think, to hear the authority of the voice of Christ and they had nothing to bring against him. Nobody ever spoke this way. I think that's essentially what is happening in this moment. Who did you come looking for? The obvious answer here is, you're wrong. He's more than the Nazarene. And he indicates it by his response to them, I am. And as I said, the response was that they retreated and that they fell down to the ground. What's striking to me about that, I shared with the young people this morning, I gave them a bonus question this morning. Listen for two more I am's. There are seven in the Gospel of John. He is the bread of life. I am, he says, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Did you notice in each one of those, he is something. Bread, light, door, shepherd, resurrection, life, way, truth, life, vine. Here, he doesn't say, I am something. He says, I am. <laughs> that, to me, that highlights what John has been saying in regards to Christ. He's been leading us that way with the I am the bread, I am the life, I am the way, I am the truth. All these I am statements, the seven, the perfect number with John. And he gets here to the end of the life of Christ on this earth. And in response to the question, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he drops all the things that he is and identifies who he is. That's a huge difference. I am. And that, I think, relates to the power that was manifest in that moment by the mercies of God and by the foreordained plan of God that they, in that moment, the, the veil slipped back and they saw the glory of God and the only response in, in, the glory, in that glory was for them to retreat and to fall down. It's another reason that I don't think they were kneeling because of some blasphemy. The falling down indicates some sort of pressure pushing you down. 
And that pressure is being in the presence, even if for a moment, of a holy God. And Jesus demonstrates His power. To me, I, I, really, this, this, this interaction here really sets the standard to me. This is the clearest statement, I think, that Jesus indicates that you are not in charge here. I am. <laughs> You want to know who I am? I am. That's who's conducting events here. So have your way. He goes on to say again. He asks him again. What's remarkable is they say the same thing. And that's stunning. And it shows the darkness of the blindness. If God's grace lets the veil fall back over your eyes, having glimpsed His glory, you will make the same false profession regarding Christ as you did just before. They had just said to Him, we seek Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says to them, I am. So powerful is that statement that it drops them to their knees and pushes them back. And then He asks them again. And rather than saying, we're looking for I don't think we're looking for anybody. I'm out of here. Rather than do that, they repeat the same answer. The veil dropped again. And so in order that the plan might be fulfilled, and they say to him, once again, we seek Jesus, the Nazarene. And this time, what does he do? We see him answer them, I told you that I am he. I don't think it had the same power. That, that he's also in italic. So he says, I told you that I am. But I don't think it had the same revelatory effect upon these people because they immediately follow through. And that's why I included in chapter, uh, in the 12th verse, that they went and arrested him and bound him. The one before whom they had just fallen at his exclamation of who he was, now they rise up in a renewed courage in their blindness apparently, and they approach Jesus and they bind him. Can you imagine binding I am? You wouldn't unless he's binding himself. Unless he's submitting himself. Unless he's willingly going forward to the cross. The only binding happening here is the binding of the father of his son upon the sacrificial offer through the hands of wicked men. That's the binding that's happening here and Jesus knows it. And so let them think what they will, but they are the means or the instrument by which he's getting to the cross. So they are permitted in this moment to take the son of God into custody and to bind him and to carry him away. It's interesting, as I mentioned as well, Judas with them, it puts him in the same group. In verses 8 and 9, you see you here Jesus, the, the preserver. By the way, verses 7 and 12, I skipped that one, but Jesus, the willing sacrifice, I've already spoken to that. In verses 8 and 9, you see Jesus, the preserver. He says to them, I told you that I am. He, if you seek me, let these go their way which he says in verse 9, John says, was to fulfill the word which he had spoken in John 17 in his prayer, of whom you have given me, I have lost not one. So here you see Jesus the preserver, about to undergo the events that he was facing, yet here he preserves his own, love them to the end. But he's preserving his own there. I am. The second time he says, I am the one you're wanting. So why take these? Essentially, let these go free. You've got your prize, as it were. And that was instrumental in their survival. 
In fact, Peter jeopardized that in some ways by drawing his sword and taking off the servant's ear. And Jesus immediately rebuked him. The other gospel says that he, he, put, he put his hands upon the ear and cleaned it or, or healed his ear in that moment. Uh, the other gospel says that Jesus says to his disciples, put it away. And he heals the ear and then he says to them something stunning. Do you not believe that, that I could not at this moment call upon my Father and He would send 12 legions of angels to do what you think you can accomplish with a little bitty sword. So put your sword away. If I need rescuing, if I need to call upon the Father, which is what's in jeopardy here in a sense, and I've already uh, defeated that foe in the garden, if I needed to do that, then He would willingly send that. Again, demonstrating His willingness to go to the cross. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that 12 legions of angels would be far more able to accomplish a deliverance than one disciple with a hot temper. Peter wasn't going to accomplish it. So we see the preserver, verse 11 and 12, as I've already mentioned, we see Jesus, the submissive one, first and foremost to the Father. He says to Peter, put the sword into the cup which the Father, shall I not drink from the cup which the Father has given me? That's the submission, first and foremost, to the Father. I think that's what the life of Christ was. Perfect obedience to the Father. Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He set aside his privilege as deity and took upon himself the form of a servant and, and was walking now as the Son of God in obedience to the Father. And, the, and it was critical that he walk in subjection to the Father, not exercising independently, but always doing the will of the Father. And he has to do that all the way to the cross. And so his secondary, first submission is to the Father. And then verse 12 even, to the instrument that the Father has ordained. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first and ultimately to Caiaphas there. So now he's submitted to the Father first and foremost. But yet in that moment he submits to the instruments ordained of the Father. He says of Judas already... The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So the, so the role of Judas, per, the person of Judas, has already been ordained. And Jesus willingly sends him out knowing he's going to betray him. Why? Because he's submissive to the Father. And the Father has ordained that this be the instrument. So he yields to the schemes of Judas, as it were, to be betrayed. I'll share this one with you. But there are two others. The eighth one, young people, this morning, you've already heard it. It's the title of the message. But here's the one that I was concluding with, and my heart just leaped. John had one more. So I'm counting nine now. But he had one more I am. And it sounds this way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 17, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And he instructs him to write to these churches. Uh, so John in the Revelation, 
Here's Christ once again say, I am the Omega, the Alpha, and the Omega. I am alive and once was dead. I'm alive forevermore. So, so I'm counting at least nine I am's of Jesus. There were probably other instances. In fact, I know there were when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and he was talking about Abraham. And they said, he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And we know that they understood exactly what they meant because they tried to kill him and throw him down the hill and kill him at that moment. They understood exactly what he was claiming. But John highlights these, I think, to establish for us once again. That's what we've been celebrating this past Holy Week and Easter as well, the resurrection, Jesus' triumph in that moment. That's the Jesus who went to the cross. And I pray that God has touched your heart with the glory of Christ this morning. Stand with me and let's be dismissed. Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious Christ who died in my place, who died as my substitute. All that was due me was poured out upon him. And Father, for, for that same Savior for each believer in this room today. And Lord, I pray that we would never devalue the glory of Christ. Lord, help us to be mindful that even as believers, who have come out of deadness, who had lived those dead years blinded to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Lord, help us to be mindful that that blindness could slip its way back in. And so, Father, by your grace and by the merit of Christ's suffering itself, Lord, keep our eyes open to behold your glory. In these moments of invitation, Father, I just pray that you touch the heart of those whom you've called and open their eyes to behold your glory in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.